last year, we had over 70,000 citizen scientists getting involved with our programs. The Great Backyard Bird Count, for example, participation tripled. Sure, there was the pandemic surge, but also I think it's a natural place for people to get involved. And as a result, we're now mobilizing Canada's largest network of citizen scientists, and it's happening around birds. That's Patrick Nadeau, president of Birds Canada. He's our guest on this avian episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm David McGuffin. Welcome back to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. We're thrilled to have Patrick Nadeau joining us this week. He is the new president of Birds Canada, which, as he mentioned, is the largest organization for citizen science in Canada. And given the interest of our CanGeo audience, I'm guessing that includes many of you listening out there right now. So this episode is about birds and you, and how by simply watching and noting those birds in your backyard, on your balcony feeder, or out in the wild, you can do a lot to advance the understanding of not just birds, but also the state of our planet. Patrick is a New Brunswick native with a long career in preserving our wild and natural spaces. He is the former executive director of CEPAS Quebec, where he played a leading role working with the Inuit in Nunavik, to create Tursuyuk National Park, which is the largest protected area in eastern North America. And as we discuss in the podcast, he was also executive director of the Ottawa River Keepers, where he helped gain heritage designation of the Ottawa River by the Ontario, Quebec, and Canadian governments, which is something that is near and dear to our hearts here at Canadian Geographic, with our headquarters perched high in the banks of the mighty Ottawa, one of the world's great exploration routes. And also stick around to the end for a very special Cangeo soundscapes. It's sounds of seals and narwhals and beluga whales singing under the Arctic ice. It was sent by our old friend, RCGS explorer and residence Jill Heiner. It's pretty magical. So without further ado, on to Birds Canada's Patrick Nadeau. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, congratulations on your new job. What was it about Birds Canada and that position that attracted you? So many things, so many things. And at the risk of sounding a bit cheesy right off the top, it truly was my dream job. I mean, among the many things that it does, Birds Canada is leading the charge in terms of citizen science. And citizen science for me is a really happy place because I'm a scientist, but I'm also... I like to say that my motto is a uh, serious science with a smile, you know, so I understand the science, I appreciate its importance, but to me, science matters if you're able to uh, make it understandable and relatable for people. So I like to work with a foot in each of those worlds. And this opportunity was just the amazing, the amazing combination of work that Birds Canada does is, is a great fit for, for me personally. For people who don't know Birds Canada, can you just tell us about, I mean, who you are and what you do and... So Birds Canada is a nonprofit organization that's been around for 60 years, um, and we are essentially the leading voice for uh, Canada's birds. So we work to uh, study and protect all groups of wild birds in Canada, um, and we do that concretely uh, through a team of scientists and through a team of um, educators and uh, specialists in uh, public outreach. So we make sure that we understand bird populations, that we uh, work with the public to appreciate them, and also that we work to uh, protect and conserve them on the ground. You mentioned citizen science there earlier, and I mean, I think about bird watching. I can't think of any other sort of pastime or hobby that involves citizen science more than bird watching. I don't know what it is about bird watchers and, and the birds themselves, but it seems like 
and and a real bump during the pandemic too. Am I right that this seems like there's been even more interest? You're right. I mean, look, interest in birds uh, is not new. I think there's a natural attraction, um, natural curiosity, and fascination uh, between humans and birds. But you're right. The pandemic has been for many an opportunity to discover, perhaps rediscover birds, um, and certainly we see that in our own programming at Birds Canada. I mean, look, during the pandemic, we had uh, some of our programs, the Great Backyard Bird Count, for example, that uh, saw its participation tripled. And we last year had over 70,000 citizen scientists getting involved with our programs, which sure, there was the pandemic surge, if you will, that was partly responsible for that. But also, I think it's a natural place for people to get involved. And as a result, uh, we're now mobilizing Canada's largest network of citizen scientists, and it's happening around birds. There's also the Christmas bird count, which I think is the longest running citizen science project in North America, I believe, right? And it's something you guys are heavily involved in. I'm just curious how that has evolved and if you can just tell us more about that. Absolutely. I mean, the great thing about uh, many of the programs that we're leading at Birds Canada, and that's one of them, is that we have been uh, tapping into this citizen science literally for decades. And so we have data, in some cases, dating back 125 years, which is phenomenal. And it really allows us to uh, study long-term trends and to better understand the impact of you know, contemporary threats like climate change, pollution. Uh, so birds are quite unique in that way. I mean, people have been interested in birds in a long time. They're relatively easy to, to access and study. So, you know, the backyard bird counts are a great example, but we've got so many others. We have a, a loon monitoring study, for example, that's been going on for 40 years at this point, And that's unbelievable uh, longitudinal data. And what do you, like loons are something that interests me. I live on a lake. So I'm <laughs> I'm a big fan of the loon because they're the last bird here in the fall and sort of the first one back in the spring. And I think they, they have a lot of street cred for me for that reason. But um, <laughs> what, I mean, with a bird like the loon, and you were talking about climate change and, and the climate crisis, and there's obviously global biodiversity issues as well. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of loons or are there other birds that are really flagging um, how they're being impacted by by climate crisis? Well, you know, I've stopped talking about climate change in the future tense. I mean, I'm very deliberate about that. Climate change is happening here and now, and there is so much evidence, including in the bird world, that it's already having an impact, you know, and it's having an impact that's compounded by many other threats. So in the case of loons, we have mercury, we have legacy issues with acid rain, and climate change is yet another layer that is that is uh, contributing to uh, to threats. Um, so, you know, there's so many examples, and, and, you know, I'm still new in my role, but certainly my colleagues are already telling me how climate change is impacting. Uh, if you look at migratory species, for example, climate change is happening at a much faster rate then migratory birds are able to adapt. So what we're seeing is a mismatch between uh, when insects first emerge, uh, they're emerging earlier now because it's warmer in the spring and early summer. By the time our migratory birds get here, the feeding bonanza has come and gone and they've missed the train because insects mm -hmm. have emerged earlier. So that's not just theoretical, that's happening right now. Uh, and our insect eating birds are suffering for it. And, you know, there's so many examples. If you think of shoreline birds, you know, we often hear about sea levels rising and shoreline erosion. What does that do to you when you're a shorebird that actually nests on some of these beaches? 
climate change is affecting our bird species in so many different ways. Um, but studying those impacts is also uh, showing us how to address some of these challenges and how to better mm -hmm. protect our species. Yeah, I mean, I think about the black fly season here, which was, as you say, it was early and very short this year, like incredibly short, which I was in some ways grateful for. But you sort of <laughs> wonder, like, what, what birds is that impacting? Yeah, I mean, we have good data. And here's the interesting things with birds. I mean, their conservation status is really a mixed bag, right? Like, they're not monolithic. Um, if you look at it from a 100,000 foot view, then yes, there's cause for concern. I mean, biodiversity is crashing and we've lost... Look, we've lost 3 billion birds in North America since 1970. So there is absolutely cause for concern. That's nearly one in three birds. Um, but then if you dig in a little bit deeper and you start looking at some of the different bird groups, uh, some of the groups that are in the most trouble are aerial insectivores. So precisely these birds that eat insects on the fly, along with shoreline birds and grassland birds, those are some of the groups that are undergoing the steepest declines. And certainly as it relates to the aerial insectivores, one of the reasons is this decoupling we're talking about uh, due to climate change. And just to dig into your roots, was there a moment when you realized that this was going to be your future? I mean, not necessarily Birds Canada, but you've lived across the country dealing with many of these issues for many, many years now. What was the moment that, that triggered that for you? You know, birds specifically, I would be lying if I said it was a lifelong passion and interest. I mean, I've always been fascinated and passionate about nature writ large. I would say I first got into birds more specifically about five years ago. And I had, you know, always been sort of tangentially interested, but I had also put up some... I think some barriers for myself, to be honest, about why I, I wasn't getting into birding. And some of these were totally self-inflicted. For instance, I'm not much of a morning person. And I just had this preconception that I had to wake up before dawn, um, you know, to be able to uh, be an adequate birder, if you will. Or I also had this misconception that I needed to have an unbelievable pair of binoculars and, you know, thorough knowledge of, about birds just to get started. But I think once I got over those hurdles that were entirely self-imposed, <laughs> I realized it was actually, um, you know, not only a great hobby and a learning opportunity, but frankly, it's almost uh, meditative for me. It's good for my mental health as well. And it's uh, one of my key go-tos uh, when I'm looking to uh, slow down the, the, the hamster, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned the backyard bird count. And I've definitely got more into birds than I'd say the last couple of years with the mm -hmm. pandemic. And we, and we have a bird feeder in the backyard. And one of the things reading up on bird feeders is there is some slight controversy, I guess, whether over what that does and does it spread disease among birds, you're bringing birds together, there's human bird interaction more. And is, is there, are there ways that we should be more careful? Should we not be feeding birds at feeders at all? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And I think it's a, the, it requires a nuanced answer because you're right, there can be impacts uh, from humans feeding birds. I think the most obvious for me is a, for example, a feeder that is put out but left uh, unkempt. So if one puts out feed, for example, and it's being rained on for several weeks in a row and you never take the time to clean your feeder, then what you might actually be doing is contributing to the spread of disease between the birds that are feeding there. So there is, I think, a minimum of awareness um, if you're going to get involved with bird feeding. And it's the same, for example, if you're going to own a pet, you know, you sort of have to learn the how-tos before you take on that kind of responsibility. 
but having said that, I think the benefits, if done properly, far outweigh uh, the, the risks. And, you know, we have statistics showing us that almost one in four Canadians have spent money on, um, you know, things like bird feeders and equipment to, to watch birds. So that's a substantial portion of Canadians uh, that has an interest, right? And and that's really important. It's, uh, you know, it's good for citizen science. It's good for connecting us to nature because there's birds pretty much wherever you are in this country. So RCGS, as you probably know, and Canadian Geographic have been actively involved in getting a national bird named. And we had a poll a few years ago and what's now called the Canada Jay again was the Grey Jay, is, was chosen by RCGS voters. I'm just wondering where you stand on the idea of having a national bird and where the Grey Jay or the Canada Jay or the Whiskey Jack, as I prefer to call it, uh, where, <laughs> where that fits into the whole scheme of things for you. So that is an apparently innocuous question, but I have to tread lightly here because it's, it's an eminently political one. <laughs> Everybody's got their favorite, right? I think, look, I think... Symbols are important. I think having, you know, our provinces already have provincial birds. And so the idea of a national bird, I think, is great, you know, um, much in the same way that Canadians associate, for example, with a maple leaf. Why not do that with a bird if it can be a tool to uh, to raise awareness? Uh, we certainly have supporters and, and people in our circles that are fervent uh, supporters of, of the great Jay and, and looking to secure that nomination. I mean, look, I think... Certainly, are we supportive of a national bird? Yes. Are we going to lead the charge as uh, a bird research and conservation organization? Perhaps not. Uh, but I think we can certainly recognize um, that it's great that this discussion is even happening. It means birds are on the radar and everything we can do to put the birds on the radar for the public and for decision makers. I think that's a win for us. See how I skated around that question? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> You have a future in politics, Patrick. <laughs> so not to pin you down, but uh, not that this bird needs to be a national bird, but do you, I mean, what are your favorite birds at a bird feeder or out when you're out in the, <laughs> in the woods? Well, the Canada Jay and, and the chickadee, I think, for kind of the same reason, I, I really enjoy them because I find they're, they're almost emissaries from the bird world. You know, they're, they're, they're very friendly to humans. You can feed them out of your hand. Um and so for that reason, I, I have a, I do have a soft spot for those birds because they're, you know, they, they help sort of, they're a gateway bird, you know, uh, but I have so many. And I think probably as president of Birds Canada, I should really uh, have my short list ready to go. And I think every single time I've been asked this question so far, I come up with a different answer because <laughs> there's so <laughs> many birds. There's so many birds on my list that I appreciate. If I could name one that I have a funny history with is, is the Northern Flicker, because the northern flicker for me is a bird that reminds me of my humility in the board, the birding world because it's a kind of woodpecker. It's actually a rather common kind of woodpecker. And the first time I saw one consciously, um, I thought I had stumbled upon an amazing rarity or some some bird that wasn't supposed to be anywhere near Ontario. So I, I got so excited only to come home and realize that, in fact, this was a northern flicker and it was actually quite common around where I live. But I will always remember that that bird for me... Um, was was you know kind of one of my gateways and kind of told me wow you have a lot to learn patrick in the birding world and it's amazing what's around us and that we don't notice until we start paying attention so i, I have that kind of relationship with the northern flicker every time i see one i'm like huh old friend yeah. confounded no more you know <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you, uh, I mean, do you have memories of, do you have a bird feeder as a kid growing up? Is that in the backyard of the Nadeau family? I don't recall having one. And you know, I'm a, I have one now. And I like to tell people that, um, even backyards in and of themselves shouldn't be an obstacle. I live in a low rise condo building. I live, I don't even have a backyard. I live on the second floor of a condo building. My feeder is doing just fine. <laughs> when I participate in Project Feeder Watch, there's no shortage of observation. So, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, feeders can do well in the craziest of places and having a backyard, as far as I'm concerned, isn't even a requirement. Same goes for the backyard bird count. You can find a ways around, you can find ways around the whole backyard thing, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, are there, are there ways, I mean, you talk about the backyard bird count several times. Is that is that a great entryway for people into Birds Canada? What programs do you recommend that are accessible? We've literally have dozens of programs. And I think the best way for people to find their fit is to visit birdscanada.org. Um, and I really want to encourage people not to put up artificial barriers for themselves. You know, if you're worried that you're not able to identify many bird species, we literally have programs where you only have to identify one. Our loon survey is a good example, but we have owl surveys and night jar surveys that start you off, um, you know, literally teaching you how to identify one species of bird. So that's a pretty accessible program suite, I would say. Um, Project Feeder Watch, of course, is near and dear to my heart, and it's one that you can do without even setting foot outside. And then there's some that are more elaborate. You know, you're out in the field. You can participate in these amazing breeding bird atlases. I mean, I was just out recently with one of our atlasers. This is a massive amount of work that we're doing across several provinces right now to monitor uh, breeding birds. Right now we're doing it in Ontario, in Newfoundland, and in Saskatchewan, literally across the provinces. And every, the provinces is subdivided into these tiny squares. And we have volunteers in each one of those squares monitoring breeding birds so that is the power of citizen science there is no way a research group would be able to do that but when you put together hundreds of dedicated volunteers that's what happens and the the amount of of information we glean from that work is is, is unbelievable hey sorry to interrupt this podcast but i just want to take a quick break to plug our sister publication canadian geographic magazine it's absolutely one of my favorite magazines and truly one of canada's greats it features award-winning, smart, thoughtful articles and stunning photography about this great land of ours, its wildlife and people. The November-December issue is out now. It features an excerpt of this interview with Patrick Nadeau. There's also a fascinating piece on the next generation of wildlife crossings poised to be constructed in BC. They will dramatically cut down on roadkill. There's a thoughtful, deep dive into the confluence of biodiversity loss and climate change. There's a neat story on kelp and a big favourite, our annual photo competition winners. There's some amazing pictures in this year's batch. The magazine only costs $28.50 for a year or $55 for two years, which is really a bargain when you think about what we shell out for streaming services each month. That gets you the print magazine as well as digital access and subscribers become members of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. That's a nice bonus. So please go to cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe it takes just a minute to sign up. And now, back to our podcast. And just to circle back, I'm just thinking of back to the migratory birds and, and the impact of climate change. And obviously, you're saying there's a great diversity of impact. But I mean, what are the birds we need to be concerned about? And, you know, what more can we do? This is where the science work that we do is so important, because the prioritizing of our conservation actions really has to rest on 
data-driven decision-making, right? And when you have the information, that's when you can make the best decisions for conservation. Um, we know, because we've been studying these for decades, that there's three groups of birds in particular that are you know, undergoing really worrying declines right now. And those are shoreline birds, grassland birds, and aerial insectivores. And, you know, for different reasons. So if we look at grassland birds, for example, habitat loss is clearly the driver in that case, because um, these birds depend on uh, natural grasslands that have been converted massively to uh, agriculture and to monocultures in many cases. So it's uh, in that case, it's habitat loss. And in all cases, I would say, however, that the solutions ultimately lie with people, you know, and that's a lot of the work that we do as Birds Canada is to uh, work with ranchers, work with farmers, uh, work with, you name it, all the stakeholders who have some skin in the game um, to find ways to recover these bird species. So, um, I mean, yeah, ultimately for me, and I think a huge part of my own role as president is about making those connections with people and, um, making sure that people remain confident that solutions are possible, you know, and I, I'm often these days looking to what we've been able to achieve with this pandemic, you know, like, and I, there's cause for optimism there as far as I'm concerned. I mean, look, humanity channeled an unbelievable amount of brain power and resources into fixing this problem. And that is the level of attention that climate change and the global collapse of biodiversity needs and it's all about people. And so, you know, that's where I find my hope. And I guess in part, your job is I mean, dealing with citizen scientists and that. But I mean, there's also a lobbying effort, I, I guess, dealing with the government and, and what the government can be doing more to deal with habitat loss and that sort of thing. And what, what, are, what are the priorities there in dealing with Ottawa, dealing with the provinces? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, you know, there's such a suite of policy issues. And I think the priorities there, again, have to be dictated by the science, right? And so I look, for instance, at what are the key threats uh, that are faced by our birds right now? Those threats are habitat loss, pollution and contamination, invasive species, and climate change. Those are some of the biggies. So once we've identified the threats, what can we do with policy tools? Um, hammer, but also carrot, to be honest. Um, that that will, you know, score some massive wins for uh, these species right across the board. And oftentimes, the great news is taking positive action for birds is obviously going to have ricochet effects on their habitats and on their ecosystems, right? So we're doing good for much more than birds. And I am, a, you know, I fervently believe that working with the government or trying to change policy does not always need to be oppositional, confrontational. There's ways to work productively and to see some real gains by channeling the positives, right? What do we want to see? Um, and I think that's the great thing with birds. Look, we've got a quarter of Canada's population that has literally spent money to observe them. So that is a pretty big constituency of people who care about birds, right? And I think, you know, I never lose sight of the fact that for every environmental policy gain that we make, you know, whether it's a law or regulation or a new protected area. I mean, at the end of the day, those tools only exist because enough people demanded them, you know, and if, if there ever, if there ever comes a day, heaven forbid, where people stop caring about birds, then those tools are not worth the paper they're printed on, you know, so of course, we have to engage with government. And of course, we have to find better policy. But concurrent with that, we have to keep 
a huge constituency of Canadians caring about birds because ultimately that's what's going to do it and that's what's going to drive uh, government decision making. Fascinating. I'm going to now jump to your previous job with the Ottawa Riverkeepers, if you don't mind for a sec, because yeah. uh, RCGS headquarters, Canadian Geographic headquarters, is right in the Ottawa River. And I often start these podcasts by declaring that it's one of the world's great exploration routes. And part of the reason I say that is because I don't think it gets the credit it deserves the Ottawa River. It, it's up there, I think, with the Nile and the Amazon and the Mississippi. It opened a continent, right? It's been you and for are, thousands of years, right? You're absolutely right. And you're not going to have to twist my arm to, to stand by that statement. I mean, the mighty Kitchissippi, um, as it's known uh, in Anishinaabeg language. I mean, look, it is, it is you know, Canada... Eastern Canada's second largest river. I mean, it's a heritage river. There's so many reasons why the Ottawa River deserves love. And, you know, the RCGS office is actually located at the confluence of three important rivers, the Rideau, the Gatineau, and the Ottawa. So bonus points there, because historically and ecologically, that's a really important uh, area. Yep. Well, I'm glad to have you on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, and before I let you go, you guys also have your own podcast. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. It's called The Warblers, and you can find our new podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I can't take any credit for it because this idea was well underway by the time I showed up at Birds Canada. But I, you know, as a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I'm not just saying that, David, because we're in the midst of recording one, uh, but I really do think they're a great vehicle for um you know, for helping people discover new interests uh, or dig deeper into their existing interests. So I would really recommend folks check out uh, the Warblers podcast. And also, uh, while they're at it, check out the Birds Canada website, because um, I am convinced that everybody can find a citizen science program that they can get behind and, and participate in. Great. Can you give us that website address? It is birdscanada.org. Ça existe aussi en français, oiseaucanada.org. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the Explore podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Well, after that, I'm definitely signing up for the Backyard Bird Count, and I hope you do too, and I hope you enjoyed this. And please, if you haven't already... Take a minute before logging off and give Explore a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have time, please give us a glowing review as well. That's a bold ask, I know. But the way the algorithm works, it's the best possible way to make sure this podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. So thank you. And now to Kangeo Soundscapes, where you, the listener, send in audio or video clips of your favorite sounds recorded somewhere in this great land of ours. This one comes to us from RCGS Explorer-in-Residence, Jill Heinerth. It's from Below the Arctic Ice, recorded by her colleague, sound engineer, Marco Fania. She writes to say, quote, We were in the Arctic camping on the sea ice. We were trying to get to the flow edge, but the ice kept breaking up. We reached a lead that was too wide to cross, so we decided to drop a hydrophone in the water. You will hear the trills of bearded seals and ring seals, clicking of narwhal teeth, and perhaps a bit of beluga background. You will also hear one of our team walking on the crunchy ice surface.
just magical. Thank you so much, Jill, for sharing that with us. You can follow Jill's work at her website, intotheplanet.com. She's also on social media at Jill Heiner. We'd love to play your favorite Canadian sound. Send them to us by tagging us using the hashtag CanGeoSoundscapes. We're on Twitter and Instagram at CanGeo. Or you can reach us the old-fashioned route and email us explore at canadiangeographic.ca. And be sure to subscribe to Explore where you listen so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this edition of Explore. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us in this, it means that in the oral history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 dives or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada.